You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Guidepost. Willie Goldsmith here, here with my faithful companion, Will Poston. Will, how's it going over there? We're doing good, uh, Willie. It's uh, Friday before Labor Day. Um, are you going? Well, out? it is Friday. It is Friday afternoon before Labor it, Day. That, let's be clear. Yeah, that too. Uh, so, you know, I hope you're getting out and chasing some uh, some panfish or other uh, your other favorite species. But um, but yeah, it should be a good one. I think so too. I think I'm literally going uh, from the lightest of ultralight to the heaviest of ultra heavy offshore big game this weekend. So I'm pretty excited about it. There you go. Um, and I think we are thrilled to have between us and the weekend, a really exciting guest joining us today on the guidepost. We have Amber Hewitt from the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, Amber is here to talk to us about a topic that a lot of folks, in uh, particular from Cape Cod South, have been hearing a whole lot about in recent months and years. And that is offshore wind development. So, Amber, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really glad to be here. Awesome. And I, I think, you know, this is a huge topic. It's something we've been trying to get our heads around for a couple of years now. Uh, obviously, a lot of strong opinions out there. I have to give Will a ton of credit for really digging into the weeds of so many of these environmental impact statements and and you know, trying to tease out a lot of the a lot of the issues and and uncertainties that are that are part of the process. But I think before we dig into that, it would be great to just hear a bit about your story, Amber, and kind of how you know you came to NWF and and got involved in offshore wind and this whole discussion that's become such a big part of you know marine marine and ecosystem discussions over the past couple of years. Great, thank you. Yeah, so I I grew up in Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is where I live today, right, right near Plum Island for those those who know the area. And I feel like I spent my whole childhood hearing about offshore wind, sort of the debate back and forth around our one proposed project at that time, Cape Wind. And, you know, remember seeing the bumper stickers for and against and the tables at farmers markets and strong opinions at dinner tables uh, either way. And, and, and that project never came to be. And so when I went into studying climate policy in college and moved to DC after after graduating. I started my career at the National Wildlife Federation, actually. And my first day there, my boss asked me, of you know, we do so much on the climate front, but of the work that that you know that we do, what what kind of intrigues you? What would you like to to spend most of your time on? And I immediately said offshore wind without having thought much about it. And it just has has really stuck ever since. Uh, the more I learned about offshore wind power in my time at NWF, the more I realized, you know, it it really was a lack of political will that kept us from getting this right sooner. Uh, and and the challenges really aren't, um, they're not economic and they're not uh, technological, though we have some of those, the, the real barriers at that point in time were political. And so ultimately, as someone who wanted to be be an advocate on, and, and be able to, to advance, help advance large-scale climate solutions, coming from the Northeast region and knowing I wanted to get back here someday, offshore wind really jumped off the map for me as something that, uh, that really uh, it could, could be a game changer in the, in the coming decades. So I've been in this work now for 10 years. 
And I'm still at National Wildlife Federation, though I did make my way back to Massachusetts and, and work from home here. And, uh, and in that time, we've expanded our work from, from focusing in the Northeast to really East Coast, West Coast, Gulf Coast, everywhere that offshore wind's moving forward. So really, it's always been an exciting time to work on offshore wind, but I feel like we're on the cusp of something. And, and I should say, you know, it's, I really appreciate doing this work uh, with, from, from the perspective of the National Wildlife Federation, because here we can uh, take on the important challenges of getting it right for uh, the species that, that are impacted by climate change and could be impacted by offshore wind development if it, if it were to move forward without important protections in place. So it kind of gives me an opportunity to both feel like, you know, we're advancing energy solutions, but, but uh, not without a lot of conditions. Got it. No, that's, that's super helpful context. And it's definitely been a, shall we say, dynamic past couple of months. I don't know, what has it been, Will? Half a dozen public comment letters that we've been, that we've gotten out the door over the past few months and just kind of this onslaught of everything from project specific to larger discussions around mitigation to, to you know, the fishing industry to, to fishing uh, to surveys that are used for stock assessments and all of those things. And this is a, a quick refresher for folks who might not be aware of kind of where ASGA is in this conversation. Uh, we have, we had a pod, a, a wind policy platform that we released last spring. And that really kind of laid out where we are in this conversation, which is, you know, trying to find a solution that, understands that there are uncertainties in offshore wind development, that, you know, there there is a, a quick pace of development that's in some cases going a lot faster than the science. And so we're trying to kind of find that balance between trying to find ways to to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but also make sure that we're not doing undue damage to marine ecosystems, to fisheries, to people like our guides who are on the water, who rely on these resources, and really just trying to toe the line here. So it's it's definitely been an interesting conversation. I think there's been some learning as you go, Amber. I don't know if you'd agree with that in terms of the process. Um, but, you know, we're, I think, as we like to say, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So here we are having this <laughs> conversation and and really trying to, trying to be useful uh, as part of the dialogue. Yeah, Willie, you uh, definitely, you know, hit that on the just how many documents BOEM is sharing. Uh, you know, I think most people that follow the offshore wind, they keep track of things in thousands of pages. Uh, um, so if that tells you anything, you know, all the councils are adding their own wind, wind people. So, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um, but, Amber, you and Willie both brought up something that I remember maybe last year, a couple of years ago, someone brought up to me. Um, just like about their biggest worry, right? It's like it, we we either tackle greenhouse gases and the threat of climate change, but you also have to balance that out with you know how to um, preserve and you know not cause undue harm on the ecosystems that we're trying to protect out there. Um, you know, in the in these amazing places uh, that so many of our guys go to every day. Um, so like Amber, like if you just want to like, you know, add some color to that, like how you kind of go through that question, maybe I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So we, when National Wildlife Federation first decided to have an offshore wind program, and I should say our, our goal here is to advance the responsible development of offshore wind. So if, and, and the definition of responsible is tailored to each location. Uh, each region, each state, uh, each stakeholder group, right? So we have to, while we move from region to region, apply our set of, you know, apply this new lens with new people in a new region, new po politics even, right? And, and, and 
form our definition uh, for each each wind energy area, each project as to what's responsible there. And, and that has to do with both protecting vulnerable species, but also protecting uh, the existing ocean uses and, and the communities that depend on ocean resources and, and really trying to find, and that, you know, those are the things that we're worried about, but then there's also shipping lanes and there are defense concerns offshore. And so we need to be part of threading a needle that's already really hard to thread. And so our goal is to really be at the table as a voice for wildlife and communities. As you said, these documents that we're seeing, the the opportunities to review lease areas and permitting applications, they're, they're thousands of pages, right? Like it's not that helpful to the everyday person to tell them, you know, don't worry, this one's only 500 pages, which is something we say at work all the time. So um, for for the for the average person, this is, you know, it, it needs to be distilled and, and, and uh, accessible. So we try to do that as well. We dive into the weeds. We bring our experts to the table um, every time there's a proposed lease area, every time there's a proposed project. So we you know, can talk through sort of the steps in the process. But at each stage, there's another opportunity with more information to weigh in and bring the voices of those who will be impacted and hopefully emerge with a project that does the least damage and, and at best provides uh, even benefits to communities and to those who may be impacted. So. Uh, it's a it's a long it's a cumbersome and involved process, but you know what I remind myself all the time is that we are uh, offshore wind now is poised to be something so big, and we can't do something this big uh, in the country's energy transition without really in, including everyone who's going to be impacted along the way, and hopefully get this better than the energy mistakes of our past and and the impacts that we know that they've had. This is is really re- yeah. rewriting. Uh, a new energy future, and uh, and we should take that really seriously. Yeah, Amber, I definitely hear you about kind of all these different players in the room, right? Because we're obviously hyper-focused on fish, and like in particular for us, like wreck fish, right? And like, you know, what's going on in the recreational community? How are we going to be impacted in terms of displacement, in terms of species, in terms of overall ecosystem impacts? When you, you go to a hearing and you hear from carpenters and tradesmen and all sorts of different other groups that we don't really think about when we think about marine fisheries, but obviously they're a big, they're a big part of this conversation as well. So, you know, bringing it back, right, bringing it back to wildlife and to fisheries into that world, from NWF's perspective, what do you guys kind of view as the biggest challenge or the biggest unknown? Like, what do you think really needs to be looked at or scrutinized more um, as we think about, you know, this, this large scale ramping up development on the East Coast and elsewhere? Yeah, sure. So there's, there's a lot of, the biggest challenge facing offshore winds from a wildlife perspective is in my opinion uncertainty because we have this is a new endeavor um, in in our waters right so there's there are thousands of offshore wind turbines around the world and there are only seven in u.s waters and so we are learning from those turbines right now five of them in rhode island and two of them off of virginia uh, but they're new. The Block Island Wind Farm off of Rhode Island is celebrating five years this year. So that's that, and that was the beginning of the U.S. offshore wind industry. And the data gathered there is very location specific. And the wildlife concerns that we have on the U.S. Atlantic coast are different than what we can learn from the North Sea. And they're they're answering different questions than we will ask in the Gulf of Mexico and that we'll ask in the Pacific. So the the fact that we are 
doing our best to make really educated guesses as to what the impacts will be so that we can mitigate them, avoid, minimize, and, and ultimately mitigate them if needed. But ultimately, uh, there are questions that will be answered as we go. And that's unsettling from a species protection standpoint. That's unsettling from um, an economic standpoint from those who make their living on the water. So, you know, that's and that's a challenge that we really can't solve until we start going. And so we need to make sure that we are monitoring as we go, that we have baseline data to to c compare that to, and that ultimately uh, we are weighing in in an ongoing conversation, really for decades to come, to make sure that each project is better than the one before it. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's not a satisfying answer to everyone. It's not, and and I understand that. And so, I think, you know, we we will do our best with what we with what we know to ask and what we can answer right now. And so from a wildlife perspective, when we first got into offshore wind, we knew uh, immediately that the North Atlantic right whale would be our, uh, among our greatest concerns for Atlantic offshore wind development. And so from the outset, you know, there are certain things we know. We know that underwater noise is disruptive and dangerous to migrating marine mammals and that all of these turbines uh, in the, the pr projects that are proposed and contracted today, um, all of them involve pile driving. And so that kind of underwater noise, you, you really can't consider one project at a time, right? You need to understand how these are going to affect a species with a cumulative view, because a lot of this development is, as you said, happening. It, it's, it's finally moving forward, right? So um, there's going to be projects under construction at the same time. And, um, and then we need to think about things like vessel speeds and the fact that these projects are putting a lot more vessels on the water in areas of importance to vulnerable marine mammals. Uh, and, and so there are things that we know we need to address. And th that's really where our comments focus on, on where we know there will be an impact. And we want to steer the industry toward um, noise mitigating technology and using quieter foundations and reducing their vessel speeds and things like that, where we're, we know, you know, there's not uncertainty there, right? Like we know that those things will lessen the chance of a negative impact. Uh, but then there are certain things that we will learn as we go. We are not, we don't have as many answers as to how birds and bats will interact with these turbines once they're up and running and, um, and what sort of, uh, you know, lighting and technology will be helpful in, in preventing those impacts. And those are things that we really need to, to, to inform our understanding of by, by trying them out. Yeah, Amber, and like, I'm going to kind of draw back to um, a sentence that we had in our most recent um, BOEM Fisheries Mitigation uh, comment letter, um, and it kind of speaks to what you were saying. Like, this is such an an evolving process. We're you know going in as informed as possible, um, but in this fisheries mitigation comment, we were like, "Hey, we need to periodically revisit this and learn from." Uh, learn from some of you know what we're learning on the water what uh how marine life is reacting how fisheries are reacting how um you know all the above and continuously adapt and evolve uh with this you know industry that's coming online very very quickly well and another thing that we that we are that we need to be adaptable about too is that the technology of offshore wind is changing really fast. So while we, while it's new to us in the U.S., it's a 30-year-old industry. The first offshore wind project was built in 1991 in Denmark, and the technology has improved drastically ever since then. 
And the types of foundations that turbines rest on are changing quickly because as the ideal areas for monopiles and jackets, the early, early foundations of the offshore wind industry, you know, as those ideal areas start to get built out around the world, developers are looking to how they can uh, install offshore wind turbines in places that have less ideal depth and seafloor conditions. And so we're seeing advancements in things like suction piling foundations and gravity-based foundations that rest on the seafloor and, and floating offshore wind, which is you know, really the future of the offshore wind industry in, in greater depths of water. So uh, all of those will have significantly different impacts on, uh, on marine species and fisheries. And so uh, and and of course on on the types of artificial reef that form under underneath um, these turbines. So all of those then will influence the recommendations that we have and the concerns that we have. So it's really it is something. It's 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 never going to be the kind of thing where we can like have a set of recommendations and put them out there and just keep repeating them. We're learning as we go and we're adapting to the changing of a, a really dynamic industry. T- totally. And, you know, while f- floating might terrify me uh, right now, I think you're right about the technology. Like another one of these recommendations we, um, you know, uh, put forward was we should be using the biggest turbines that we have available to minimize project footprints, you know, at where it's where, where it makes sense, obviously. Um, but, you know, another thing from the techno- techno- uh, technology standpoint is like we don't know about any spatial resolution about recreational fisheries out there. And there may be opportunities to, you know, have some AI technology to see how many boats are going out there, how many guys are fishing. Um, so that's something that we've been uh, certainly thinking about, like w- one of these ways you can leverage, um, you know, all this energy and, you know, frankly, money that's going around offshore wind and how to, uh, you know, make it better for, for our, our guys and our, uh, our fishermen. Yeah, it's definitely I just to just to piggyback off that, I think, you know, this it, it's it's like a lot of things we think about where when you're trying to understand what the impacts of offshore wind are, you're also thinking about what are the you know, what are the vulnerabilities and often the vulnerabilities come in the form of the unknown, right? So if there are places where we can can leverage, you know, as Will said, you know, some of these new resources coming in, I think recreational data is a fantastic example where this is really giving us an uh you know, there's there's this understanding all of a sudden that you know, this spatial resolution of a lot of our of our data is, is not really there to meaningfully inform these conversations. And, you know, certainly um, all stakeholders should be involved in the conversation. And I think we could talk about that in a bit in terms of how to do that. But I think the, the burden has really heavily come on the recreational community as a result of there not being really any other data. So without any, any kind of more formal information out there that you might have in other industries, um, it becomes a lot harder to, to, to weigh in um, you know, in a, or to, to have that information available so that the burden isn't on you as an individual angler or as a for hire captain to be, to kind of be explaining how, how that impact might, might come to bear. That's a great point. And it's something I particularly find myself, you know, when I'm in conversation with offshore wind skeptics or those who are just getting into the conversation and it makes them really nervous and they feel like things are moving fast. And it's, the a, a primary concern that I hear is there's not enough baseline data. We need more time. We need more. Uh, we need more information. Years to fill these knowledge gaps uh, before we can really make informed comments. And you know, this is I think one of those tension points. In we need clean energy solutions, right? Like we're racing a clock on climate change, and so that shouldn't be used to you know as an argument to say so we don't have time to get data. We should have been gathering 
critical data to inform this industry for decades now, right? Uh, so what I really try to point to here is the opportunity that the offshore wind industry really brings to the table in terms of gathering the data that's needed. And I won't say that it's a perfect solution, but there's, as you mentioned, a lot of money coming into the federal government from offshore wind developers. Every time they buy a lease, they, there is an infusion of cash to the U.S. Treasury. Leases off of New York and New Jersey just sold for one of them a billion dollars and the others hundreds of millions. And so this is a great moment to point to the data that's needed and say, you know, you just got a lot of money. Like, let's do this. Let's do the research that's needed. Let's keep it consistent um, and, and make sure that it is constantly on a parallel track with this industry so that we can be uh, making informed decisions going forward. No, it's a, that's a great point. And I think, you know, that money it can mean different things to different people, right? So for some people, that money might mean, you know, compensation for, for lost earnings. I think for, for us at ASJ, a lot of what we think about is how can we support better, better science um, to, to understand what the impacts are, or at the very least to, to minimize some of the impacts coming out of, coming out of development. I think Will alluded to it earlier. Um, you know, we've heard so much about the, the, the Northeast Fisheries Science Center's uh, surveys, right, that, that form kind of the backbone of our stock assessment process. And that's a huge source of data for, for understanding what our, what our AC, you know, what our, and what our allowable catch limit should be for species and, and really ensuring long-term sustainability. And so I guess one question I have for you is, you know, how is, like, how do we make sure that, that money is getting into those, into those locations, right? Because I know that's been a conversation of, of uh, a spirited debate, uh, should I say, over the past couple of months or years here? Yes, it is still spirited. Uh, the, the, you know, and I think it's gotten more spirited as the price tag of these leases continues to go up. When, when the federal government started to have lease auctions in 2013 and 14 and 15, leases were going for, you know, six figures. We're talking like $180,000 and now we're at $100 million. And so there's a lot more, well, a billion dollars in some cases, though I think the New York and New Jersey leases certainly draw a pretty high price tag given the energy market that they're close to. We won't, I don't think, see many more billion dollar leases, but but who knows? Um, the, the That money right now goes just into the general fund, straight into the U.S. Treasury. And uh, when the price tag started to roll in in recent years and really start to be game-changing amounts of money potentially to solve some of the, the challenges that are really holding offshore wind back, um, it you know there's been a lot more attention now onto appropriating those funds in ways that kind of solve some of the challenges, right? And so there are various different approaches. I mean, we really do need Congress if we're going to allocate specifically those resources to specific challenges. And there are models for that. The Gulf of Mexico with oil and gas leasing, you know, has a revenue sharing model that takes those funds and directs them to solve some of the problems caused by oil and gas leasing. Um, that's con controversial in the conservation community. It's something that, you know, National Wildlife Federation has taken the position of supporting a revenue sharing model for offshore wind, and we would like to see that successful this session. Um, but there are there are other. I think there are arguably administrative pathways too uh, that that you know maybe we could could find another way forward here with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management um, being able to allocate some of the the resources they have to to whether it's for fisheries compensation for those who who lose earnings or. Um, or for research and data 
but uh, you're, it's a, it is a live, real-time live wire. So we'll see what happens in the coming months. Amber, yeah, I mean, it's everyone wants money, and there is a, a brand new source of it that doesn't have, um, you know, no strings attached, really, like you said. So uh, yeah, everyone's going to be reaching their hands. We want to make sure it gets in the right places. Um, but you know, you started talking a little bit about, um, you know, Boehm right now, and you know, throughout this whole every offshore wind discussion, you know, every agency is kind of like pointing their fingers at everyone else. Like who can do this? Who can do that? Who has authority here? Who, um, you know, has no authority. Uh, so if you could kind of maybe paint the picture from, you know, administrative or, you know, who actually has the regulatory authorities to permit and to, you know, who, who needs to make these decisions? Um, I think that could be super useful. Yes, absolutely. So this is a long process. And I say that to really underscore that while it feels like offshore wind is moving fast, when you finally see an offshore wind, a power contract or, a, you know, a groundbreaking for a piece of construction, uh, that that comes after about a decade of leasing, permitting and planning. When I started working on offshore wind, there was an well, I guess it was in 2012, there weren't any lease areas on the map in federal waters. And so a big, you know, a big path that has been just plowing ahead since then has been the federal government's efforts to lease, designate and lease areas for offshore wind development on the outer continental shelf. So federal waters, as your audience knows, I have to say this often, but I'm sure everyone listening knows that federal waters start three miles offshore. So that's where there's jurisdiction, right? And the federal government is able to begin the leasing process uh, with with a large area. So say they'll, you know, go to the Gulf of Mexico or an area that they call the Central Atlantic, right? Like start with a big chunk of area and uh, draw a, a, an unforgiving line on a map, just a, a big, a big blob to start and invite comments on that area. So that area often uh, raises sounds alarms, right? But it's supposed to because it's the starting point and it could shrink by 90% from there. But this is just- I think that the technical term, Amber, <laughs> that Will and I have deduced from attending way too many BOA meetings is winnow down. Winnow. I think we have yeah. heard that expression <laughs> a couple of million times over the past couple of months. Certain words. <laughs> so the winnowing, yes. Yes, the winnowing process uh, is long and, and treacherous. And so this is where everyone has a chance to weigh in. And this is, this is, I think, you know, for anyone who feels uh, alarmed by or concerned about offshore wind development in an area that's important to them for any reason, whether it's a species they care about or just a place that is meaningful to them, um, they, that, that's a chance to, to put uh, your concern on the, on the public record to be heard. You can, there are, uh, there's an abundance of public meetings and public, um, you know, you can comment in writing, you can show up and speak to Boehm directly, you can have your questions answered. I mean, there's a really, for those who are, who have the time and, and capacity to get in the weeds, the, the opportunity is there. I want to say that with caveats though, because, you know, these meetings are long and they're in the middle of, you know, middle of the workday or middle of family time. And I recognize that they're not necessarily accessible to everyone. Um, but there are, uh, there are 
portals to submit your comments online at any hour of the day and you can can deliver you know whatever amount of detail is important any data or research or concern or shape file that you want to drop into this portal does get considered uh, may not materialize in the in the way that you want in a finished product but it, it will you will get um, you'll be heard and you will get answers and so ultimately, uh, that winnowing process plays out over a few steps. So there's a there's a call area which um, that Boehm then asks for uh, interest and information on that area. So they're evaluating both commercial interest in developing in an area alongside uh, in gathering information from from experts and locals on on what they should be avoiding in that area. And then a new set of areas emerges. Uh, a draft wind energy area. They're usually called, I, you know, honestly, the process is changing quickly as well and adapting to each region. So there's no sort of perfect map, but the process is, is largely following the same pattern of call area windowed down to a wind energy area. And then uh, there is a, a, another public comment opportunity, uh, an environmental assessment that begins to consider the, uh, the resources uh, in, in that area. And then ultimately, um, the areas held for auction. So typically, you know, you'll see various areas in a region at one time, four to six areas auctioned off. Developers that qualify for the auction can uh, can place their bids. These auctions typically last a couple of days and are extremely competitive. And as I mentioned, their places are starting to go for tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. And then you have a developer in play. So that's really where things. Um, start to gain traction because now you have um, an entity that's put a lot of money on the table and and wants to be able to advance a project over time. Winning that lease area, very important, does not permit them to develop anything. So they just have the right to start analyzing this area now and to put forth site assessment plans and construction and operation plans, which also trigger various public comment opportunities. Once they've submitted a construction and operations plan, uh, which which gives, um, you know, they're usually a little over a thousand pages and have details on what a project will look like. Um, at that stage, the public gets to review that document and and provide, um, raise their concerns about it or support for it as BOEM gets to work on a draft environmental impact statement. And so this is a Another, uh, you know, amidst this multi-year project, that's that's about a two-year process for Boehm to uh, produce ultimately a final environmental impact statement and then and then make a decision about whether a project is fully permitted to go forward. Um, and that is the federal process. And alongside that, there are similar uh, state processes and even local interconnection permitting that needs to happen. So these projects need need to. Um, earn an abundance of permits, all of which come with public comment opportunities. So the the opportunity to weigh in is extensive, and uh, for those who, who really want to dive into it. And we should note at this point in the podcast that you are eligible for continuing education credits for uh, NEPA uh, knowledge on this podcast if you listen to Amber. So Amber, thank you for the download of kind of the process and how it goes. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned that the process has been evolving a little bit. And I do want to get back to like that programmatic environmental impact statement that the New York fight, um, you know, has, has been doing. Um, but a couple of things that you said kind of jumped out at me. And I just wanted to make sure that, that folks are aware. So the first thing is just to say clearly that, you know, the ultimate permitting authority rests with BOA. Um, through this process. And, you know, I think just, you know, just to say it, I think for a lot of fishermen that that's hard, right? Because, you know, for better or for worse, folks have become conditioned to 
regional councils, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, uh, NOAA Fisheries itself. And so I think, again, this process of trying to learn an entirely new agency and also to learn NEPA, right, and learn that whole process, um, it's hard. It's a, it's a big lift. Um, you know, certainly we've been trying to, um, you know, trying to, to help folks understand the process and how to be involved. But I think to your point about, you know, the, the opportunities are there and it's a matter of trying to ferret out, you know, where those opportunities are. And I think more importantly as well, um, you know, how you can be constructive as a stakeholder. Um, and to that point, I just wanted to bring up again, thinking about kind of the, you know, those different agencies, you had mentioned the Central Atlantic Planning Area, uh, which certainly, you know, we were in the winnowing down discussions uh, last spring, I think it was. And, you know, there were a lot of conflicts that came up with, with, with not just fishermen, but with managers as well. Um, and I think one of those, for example, was parts of the Central Atlantic Planning Area overlap with a large coral conservation area um, that I believe had been implemented by the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council. And I guess I just I just wanted to hear kind of in your opinion, like are Boehm and NOAA, like are they playing well together? Like is this is like how is this process going um in terms of interagency cooperation? Like are there opportunities for improvement there? Um I think certainly, you know, some fishermen are confused. Like I'll I'll hear folks who are really mad at NOAA. Uh meanwhile, it's kind of Boehm that's, you know, making a lot of these decisions. So I was just wondering, you know, to to hear your insight as to kind of how you think that. Uh, you know, that that process is going between these two agencies. They're obviously, uh, you know, separate in a lot of what they do, but come together on this specific issue. I think it's perhaps the best it's been in a while, um, which, you know, maybe is a really low bar to clear. Uh, but we've, of course, gone through several administrations, well, three really administrations have, have been charged with this now. And, um, and we're at a place where I, I don't know if, I don't know if there, it would be, you know, it certainly wouldn't be possible to avoid criticism, uh, but because they're moving so fast, uh, you know, there there are, I think, the occasional um, mis lack of communication or very clear sort of avoidable um, miscommunication that that is, you know, when you're trying to do something controversial, those feel like real setbacks or unforced errors. But uh, but I will say, you know, I think what we have in both Boehm and Noah right now is is a lot of getting a lot more attention, um, and I feel like there's a, a lot of uh, commitment to to getting this right and sticking the landing of what the administration has promised an offshore wind industry that both creates thousands of union jobs and protects biodiversity and allows ocean users to continue to to um, thrive. And so this is the you know, that is the chart, their charge, and that is their commitment. I won't, I won't say they always get it right. But I will say that, you know, as far as, um, as far as being committed to improving the process, um, and really hearing out stakeholders on their concerns, I think, I think we're at a high right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I have, you know, like, like I was just alluding to earlier, you know, we're working on, um, and Boehm is working on ways to improve the process. Uh, but what kind of worries me, and I don't know if, you know, I wasn't around when these, you know, first leases south of the vineyard and up in the northeast were coming, but it feels like so much of that now is baked in um, where all these, you know, good improvements that we're getting from Boehm right now and with developers on new projects and new leases, uh, you know, aren't going to be available in the northeast where so many of our guys you know, are so often. Um, so 
and, and again, there's so many different stages to these projects. You might have better insight as to whether there are still opportunities to um, improve the process in the Northeast or whether it is baked in. Um, like I know in the in the New York Bite, something that we were excited to see just because it helps out fishermen who want to get involved um, was the regional approach to the environmental impact statement. Um, but, you know, again, all these projects are going to be different. It's going to have to go to a project stage at some point, but uh, assessing impacts at a regional scale certainly seems like a no-brainer for an outreach perspective and when you're looking at cumulative impacts. Yes, I love this question, Will. I, I have to say, I think it is, it, it is, I'm not just trying to be an optimist here. Like it is, it is really true that there, there are still, and there will continue to be opportunities to influence every offshore wind project going forward. We have, you know, I, truly, we spent four years with, with feeling like there was pretty minimal leverage in the, on the federal level and trying to figure out where do we, um, where do we make the gains that we want to make when we don't really know what the federal government's plan on offshore wind is, or if they're going to permit any projects, or if we, um, you know, if our information will be used against us. So it was a really tough, tough four years there. And we had to continue to figure out where the levers are to influence this process. And so now we're in this moment where, um, we, I think, have really strengthened our our advocacy uh, approach in a way that's more resilient because we have, uh, yes, there are these formal public comment opportunities to weigh in on. I will say, Bone, though, like, we'll take input all the time. There's never a missed boat. You never, like, the train didn't leave the station. There are only two offshore wind projects in federal waters that have been fully permitted. So as much as we might hear about so many projects coming our way, they are all in the queue somewhere working through the grind of this NEPA process. So the federal opportunities that we named are still many, even in the projects in the in the New England areas, right? Like Boehm just put out a draft environmental impact statement on a project called Revolution Wing, which will deliver power to Rhode Island and Connecticut. The lease area for that was drawn in 2013, you know, in the early 2010s. And um, and now we're finally seeing a draft environmental impact statement where we can weigh in with the information that we have now, information that we did not provide in the leasing process almost a decade ago, right? So we get more bites at this apple as we go. Um, and so as we learn, we will add, add our asks. And the programmatic environmental impact statement in the New York Bite is a really great example where we weren't asking for programmatic EISs five years ago, but we think they're a really good idea now. And we should have done that. We should have been advocating for them before um, and so, but that doesn't mean we like rewind and start over, um, but that we advocate for that process going forward and then try to figure out what did we miss by not being able to do that before and what are our opportunities to still get that input in now. So there's the federal, there, the, the federal opportunities are still many. That said, something we haven't spoken much about today is the, the opportunities at the state level and that in every instance, of offshore wind development, the buyers of the power are our states. And so a lot of my time is spent in state houses and reminding state legislators and administrations the power that they have in being the buyer of this energy. And that while you may not have jurisdiction over what happens in federal waters, you have jurisdiction over 
what you write into your energy law and what you write into an RFP. And you can say, we will only buy power that meets this bar of environmental and fisheries impact mitigation, right? There's a lot of um, great examples of states doing that in, in Connecticut and in New York, New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts just passed a bill that strengthened environmental protections and offshore wind. And so we have, you know, that leverage remains everywhere that offshore wind might go forward, right? So there's always opportunities to get in that way. And then finally, the opportunity to go straight to developers. So developers know, right, that, and we can really, you know, bring this message loud and clear, particularly from Massachusetts, where our first project that never got off the ground endured 27 lawsuits. Cape Wind uh, fought out these legal battles that really showed us the ways in which offshore wind projects can be vulnerable. And um, and we see even in the projects going forward today, Vineyard Winds um, enduring lawsuits that that highlight um, and you know Endangered Species Act concerns, right? So developers know that they're legally vulnerable if they don't get this right for wildlife and for fisheries. And so um, and that those are opponents that you know may be ready to bring a legal challenge if they were to really err in a significant way. So for us to be able to go to developers and say, you know, let's avoid that scenario. And this, even though BOEM didn't require you to do this, even though the state didn't require you to do this, you know, this mitigation measure, you really should do this. And and um, it will, you know, hopefully help you avoid a lawsuit going forward. So uh, that leverage is real. And it's something that we will have, you know, every step in the process as needed. Yeah, I, I mean, like the leverage that I've been recently looking at more and more just on, um, you know, attending so many of these BOEM meetings uh, is just through the terms and conditions. They're like, that's the main way it, you can, you know, put some teeth into some of these standardized, um, you know, to a degree, but, you know, ways that uh, like you could, you could put nature-based designs in in the terms and conditions. You could, you know, do some buffer zones or stuff like that that, you know, uh, a developer may not want to do if they don't have to. But it's not gonna it's not gonna mess them up too much. But uh, if you put that in the terms and conditions, you know, that that's where where I see uh, really having um, really baking in some of these you know beneficial uh, ways to improve this industry. In terms of having the most, I would say, like, don't get overwhelmed by the feeling of needing to read every document or understand every step of the process, because ultimately what it all comes down to is that BOEM needs to know what impact you're worried about, right? It's it's actually their job to incorporate that into something that that changes what what emerges as a as a wind energy area and ultimately as a permitted project. So you don't need to be able to explain, you know, what step of the process your information is most important for it. But as early as you learn that there is a lease area or a project anywhere in the process, whether it's a lease area that is being drawn on a map, whether um, project environmental impact statements are being drafted. If you have information that you think should uh, be considered in this process, if what's weighing on you is like, that area is important to me, this is how I use it, uh, this is the impact I'm worried about, give that information to BOEM 
and and hold them accountable to giving you an answer. So if you show up at a meeting uh, for all of these processes, as we mentioned, there are public meetings. Um, if you show up at a meeting, there's a question and answer ses session where they take every single question and you may not be satisfied with the answer that you get. And that's, you know, I hope that you will uh, uh, continue to follow up and continue to raise your concerns. Um, I don't want to make any promises on behalf of the federal government today, but ultimately, um, they're looking for information and they want to produce, they want, they want to, what emerges to be the pathway for a successful project, right? Okay. So the, the, and they want it to be something that states feel good about and that local, um, local elected officials feel good about. And so if those folks, like if your state officials are uh, hearing from you as well, they should be amplifying your concerns. So every um, lease area or wind energy area has a, associated with it a, a, an intergovernmental intergovernmental renewable energy task force, and so this task force um, is you know it's government officials, so it's it's state, federal, local, and tribal representatives. Um, find out who represents you that's on that task force, and task them with delivering your concerns as well. Right, so don't you know bring your drop your information into the portal. Um, make sure that BOEM has has your concerns, but then also really hold hold your elected officials accountable to, and it could be your mayor, it could be your state rep, it could be your assemblyman, have them, uh, have them keep speaking up for you along the way. I think, you know, it's really important that we, uh, that these areas emerge in a way that is informed by public input, but we, they're getting so much information right now that the more voices that you can bring to the table, the better. But I think in terms of influence, what I will say is make sure that your input is fact-based, make sure it's specific. Um, give as much data as you're comfortable with. I know that that can be tricky with fisheries, um, but give give as much location specific and species specific data, um, even if you're raising an uncertainty that this is something that we need to make sure we're thinking about and this is an area where we need to gather data. Um, and lastly, I'll say because I'm with the National Wildlife Federation and we care a lot about this and spend a lot of time on it, um, reach out, you know, there are, it is my full-time job and I work with a lot of colleagues whose full-time job it is to raise concerns about impact to wildlife and fisheries. And so you don't have to do this all on your own. You have a full-time job and uh, I'm, I consider myself lucky that this is my full-time job. So, you know, I do want to consider, you know, I hope everyone listening will, will feel comfortable reaching out and consider um, advocates like myself a resource uh, to, to make sure that we get this right because our support for offshore wind and personally, my support for offshore wind, you know, it, it comes with with the conditions of of the communities that will be impacted. So, hope that's helpful. Thank you for having me. Really great to to talk with you all today. And anytime you want to talk offshore wind, give me a call.